from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's episode is about Canadian serial killer Peter Woodcock, and I must say he is a pretty good example of a possible correlation between childhood issues and that same child growing up and displaying a lack of empathy toward others. I do need to warn you that his crimes were quite disturbing. So, listen with that in mind. Peter Woodcock was born on March 5, 1939, making him a Pisces, in Peterborough, Ontario, which is just northeast of Toronto. So, let's get into what was going on in the world at that time. In 1939, Canada was visited by King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, who were the parents of England's current Queen Elizabeth. This was referred to as the, quote, Royal Tour of Canada. They visited every province in Canada, as well as Newfoundland, and even stepped over into the U.S. for a few days. The Canadian citizens came out in droves to witness this tour. Also at that time, a person could go to the grocery store and buy a small amount of bacon, a steak, uh, flour and sugar, coffee, an onion, a couple of potatoes, milk, eggs and butter, and your total bill would have been just over $3. In comparison, today that same bill would be roughly $55. A gallon of gasoline was $0.10, a movie ticket was $0.25, and the average annual household income was around $1,700, and it cost, on average, about $4,000 for a house. The biggest bit of news, though, as I am quite sure most of you already know, is that World War II had officially begun. On September 1st, Hitler invaded Poland. In turn, Britain, France, India, Australia, and New Zealand declared war against Germany two days later. On September 10th, Canada also entered the war. There was also a worldwide Great Depression. And Canada was not immune. Many citizens lost their jobs. There was little food to eat, and many people became homeless. This time in Canada's history is called the Dirty Thirties, largely due to Canada being highly dependent on raw materials and farm exports due to a horrible drought and what crops they could grow were being destroyed by insects. So, one in five Canadians became dependent on government assistance. Also, Jewish people who were fleeing Europe due to the Nazis were denied sanctuary in Canada and, in fact, 
deportation actually rose significantly during that time. So, in 1936, Canada's Department of Defense created unemployment relief camps. They paid men 20 cents a day to go out into the Canadian bush and work construction. Of course, the conditions of the camps were not good, which is to be expected, and the men protested, which led to the Regina Riot. During the riot, dozens of men were injured, one policeman was killed, and over a hundred were arrested. So as you can clearly see, when Peter Woodcock was born, much of the developed world was in crisis. Canada was no exception. Peter's mother was a 17-year-old factory worker named Waida Woodcock. She also prostituted herself for extra money. She never did reveal, and quite possibly didn't know, who his biological father was. She did the best she could as a single mother, but Peter was a nearly inconsolable baby. He cried constantly, which seems to be most likely that he was colicky, and it generally passes when the infant is around three months old. Could last a bit longer. So after breastfeeding him for only one month, she gave him up to the Children's Aid Society, which was a foster care system in Canada. Reports show that he continued to display feeding problems, and he was passed from home to home, never given time to form a real bond with another person. According to the article, The Importance of Early Bonding on the Long-Term Mental Health and Resilience of Children, written by Robert Winston, states that, quote, Human babies are born very dependent on their parents. They undergo huge brain development, growth, and neuron pruning in the first two years of life. The brain development of infants, as well as their social, emotional, and cognitive development, depends on a loving bond or attachment relationship with a primary caregiver, usually a parent. There is increasing evidence from the fields of developmental psychology, neurobiology, and animal epigenetic studies that neglect, parental inconsistency, and a lack of love can lead to long-term mental health problems as well as to reduced overall potential and happiness. The most important stage for brain development is the beginning of life, starting in the womb and then the first year. By the age of three, a child's brain has reached almost 90% of its adult size. This rapid brain growth and circuitry have been estimated at an astounding rate of 700 to 1,000 synapse connections per second in this period. Per second. The experiences a baby has with his or her caregivers are crucial to this early wiring and pruning and enable millions and millions of new connections in the brain to be made. Repeated interactions and communication lead to pathways being laid down that help memories and relationships form and learning and logic to develop. This means a human baby's brain is both complicated and vulnerable. If positive experiences do not happen, the pathways needed for normal human experiences may be lost. This is often referred to as the use it or lose it principle. Tragic case studies of feral children who have survived with minimal human contact illustrate the severe lack of language and emotional development in the absence of love, language, and attention. 
In the same way, even though babies have a deep genetic predisposition to bond with a loving parent, this can be disrupted if a baby's parents or caregivers are neglectful and inconsistent. Indeed, longitudinal studies have reported that a child's ability to form and maintain healthy relationships throughout life may be significantly impaired by having an insecure attachment to a primary caregiver. It has been reported the following pathology in children who suffered neglect, an extreme form of insecure attachment in their early years, reduced growth in the left hemisphere, which may lead to associated increased depression risk for depression, increased sensitivity in the limbic system, which can lead to anxiety disorders, and reduced growth in the hippocampus that could contribute to learning and memory impairments. In one particular foster home, he was abused, and as a result, he had to be taken to the emergency room where it was discovered that he had suffered a neck injury. Peter became so detached, he would scream in terror if anyone came near him. So one of his coping mechanisms was making odd animal noises, and his behavior became worse and worse. Peter later stated that he remembered being left alone in the dark for long periods of time, saying, quote, Hardly anyone ever picked me up or held me or things like that. When Peter Woodcock was three years old, he was put in the foster home of Frank and Susan Maynard, who already had another son. The couple lived comfortably during these hard times. This would prove to be a much more stable environment for Peter. His foster parents put him in therapy, and eventually his constant screaming and crying subsided. However, the damage was already done. He could remain calm around other people, but he was forever the social outcast. The Maynards took Peter to Sick Kids Hospital for his already apparent behavioral issues, and the doctors stated that he was displaying schizophrenic behaviors at just 10 years old. Now, they didn't technically diagnose him with schizophrenia, but even saying that for a 10-year-old little boy is highly unusual. Social workers stayed involved with the family so that they could monitor Peter's continuing development, and one social worker in particular later stated that once, when she took him to the Canadian National Exhibition, he said, quote, I wish a bomb would fall on the exhibition and kill all of the children. Peter was quite talkative, and he came across as a know-it-all, but he had academic, social, and disciplinary problems, and the other kids targeted him and bullied him relentlessly, resorting to him hiding in the forests or the bushes near his home to avoid those kids. As his childhood progressed, already having a speech impediment, he never was able to form attachments to his peers or others around him. He had no friends. This would later leave him with a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. Now, kids and teens with this disorder generally always caused from not being able to properly bond with caregivers. They isolate themselves or they are severely aggressive. They need to be in total control of every situation. They just don't have the ability to trust other people. They crave attention, but once they get it, they have a hard time deciphering the emotion behind that attention, 
and therefore process it as a negative experience. They have a diminished sense of guilt and generally begin displaying sexual deviancy and also tend to abuse drugs. Suicide is also a concern with this disorder. So Peter was indeed a loner and had a hard time interacting with people when they would try to speak to him. He had an insatiable need to wander around as far as his parents would allow. He was just not content to be still. An excerpt from a report based on Peter Woodcock's childhood behavior states, quote, Slight in build, neat in appearance, eyes bright and wide open, worried facial expression, sometimes screwing up his eyes, walks briskly and erect, moves rapidly, darts ahead, interested in questioning constantly in conversation. He attributes his wandering to feeling so nervous that he just has to get away. In some ways, Peter has little capacity for self-control. He appears to act out almost everything he thinks and demonstrates excessive affection for his foster mother. Although he verbalizes his resentment for other children, he has never been known to physically attack another child. Peter apparently has no friends. He plays occasionally with younger children, but he manages the play. When with children his own age, he is boastful and expresses determinedly ideas which are unacceptable and misunderstood." Unquote. So his parents put him in a private school, hoping it would help his awkwardness around kids his own age, but it made no difference. Peter's foster parents were forced to then remove him from the private school due to his very strange behavior. Social workers and therapists still tried to work with the family due to him technically still being a foster child. His parents sent him to a school for emotionally disturbed kids in Kingston, Ontario, and his behavior became even more twisted and sadistic. It was also at this school where, according to Peter, who was 13 at this point, said he became sexually active with a consenting 12-year-old girl. Now, whether this is true is not known. The one thing Peter loved above all was his bicycle. It was a red and white Schwinn which served to soothe his compulsion to wander around and be by himself. He rode it everywhere, sometimes for miles out into the desolate and frigid Canada winter. In his mind, he pretended to be leading a gang of 500 invisible boys, which he named the Winchester Heights Gang. He was also beginning to live a very colorful fantasy life in his own mind. At 17 years old, Peter lived nearly entirely within the dark fantasies of his mind at this point. These fantasies began to spill into his reality when he began riding his bike around, finding young children, and molesting them. He had a fascination with the human body and later said that his sexual urges were just too strong at the time. His game was to find small children, choke them into unconsciousness, then undress and abuse them. So, guys, here is where I want to warn you that things are going to get a bit graphic and it does involve very small children. I'm trying to censor it as much as I can while still giving details so that you can see just how depraved he was, but please listen with caution. 
On September 15, 1956, 17-year-old Peter was riding his bike around when he found a 7-year-old Wayne Mallet. Peter stopped and got the boy to follow him into a secluded area where he strangled the boy to death. He then removed his clothes, he bit the young boy on his buttock, as well as his calf muscle, but it did not appear that the little boy had been raped. His face had been mashed into the dirt. Pennies laid strewn all around the body, and Peter had defecated next to him as well. He then redressed the boy, and he left. Wayne's little body was found early the next morning. In the 1950s, they did not yet have the sophisticated testing equipment like we have now to find out who did it, so there really wasn't much evidence to go on. In less than a month, on October 6th, Peter was riding his bike around again, pretending to be leading his gang of 500 young boys when he saw nine-year-old Gary Morris. He picked him up. He took him to Cherry Beach, where he mercilessly beat the young boy and then strangled him to death. He then bit the little boy's throat and dropped a bunch of paper clips around the body. The young boy had also suffered a ruptured liver from Peter stomping on him. The authorities who found him stated that, again, the murderer had taken the clothes off of the boy and then put them back on, but there was no evidence of rape. Then. Peter stayed quiet for a few months, most likely due to the holidays, but then on January 19, 1957, he was again riding his prized bike around. He saw four-year-old Carol Boyce and offered her a ride. This time, a witness saw him approach the little girl. Peter took Carol under a viaduct, which is a bridge that acts as a sort of a, an overpass, and this is where he choked her and... Okay, guys, if you're sensitive, cover your ears and count to five. He shoved a tree branch up into her pelvis. This was the injury that ultimately ended her short life. Another witness saw Peter on his bike fleeing the scene. So the witnesses contacted the police and were able to give a description so that a composite sketch could be put together and distributed. The sketch was also on the front page of the Toronto Star, where it did not take long for him to be identified. Peter was arrested on January 21, 1957, and quickly confessed to murdering the three children as well as molesting many other children. He showed absolutely no emotion or concern for the children or their grieving parents, but what he was worried about was whether or not his mother would find out. His trial began later that year and lasted for four days, and he was ultimately found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was then taken to a mental health center. His foster father never spoke to him again, but he and his foster mother wrote back and forth, and they kept in contact for nearly 10 years, but eventually Peter stopped writing. While in the mental facility, the doctors used him as a guinea pig for all sorts of treatments and experiments, such as regularly pumping him full of LSD and then shutting him in a pitch black artificial womb for hours. He endured years of electroshock therapy, sodium amytal, which is a hypnotic sedative, and all other sorts of drugs to see if they could treat his psychopathy. They also performed 
dyadic developmental psychotherapy, which is a treatment for people, usually children, with attachment disorders. This treatment involves putting the individual in an environment that is empathic, accepting, curious, and playful. It involves eye contact, neutral or happy facial expressions, careful voice tone, and appropriate touch. However, this treatment has recently come under scrutiny. There's been uh, no supported claims that it's effective. As it was, none of these treatments were effective for Peter whatsoever. Peter did, however, use these learned skills to manipulate and control the other kids at the mental facility who had much more severe issues. He could talk them into performing sexual acts on each other. As the years went by, it got so out of control that he ultimately had to be taken to a different facility. At the new place, Peter was allowed supervised day passes where he could leave the hospital. He was then allowed to visit the Smith's Fall Railway Museum because he had always enjoyed trains, and he was even taken to see the movie Silence of the Lambs. Why? Who knows? But during this time in the late 80s and the early 90s, as Peter was aging, he legally changed his name to David Michael Kruger, but I'm going to continue to refer to him as Peter to save on confusion. He befriended a former patient at Peter's current facility. Peter felt he was in love with this former inmate by the name of Bruce Hamill, who now worked at the mental facility as a security guard. Peter then devised a plan of action to which Bruce would carry out. On July 31, 1991, when Peter Woodcock was 52 years old, he talked Bruce Hamill into going into a hardware store. There, Bruce purchased a wrench, a hatchet, knives, and a sleeping bag. Bruce then signed Peter out of the hospital on a day pass. This would be the first time Peter had been unsupervised in 34 years. He was to meet up with a man named Dennis Kerr in the woods not far from the mental facility. Dennis had been told by Bruce that he was getting $500 from Peter. Again, guys, I must warn you that this next part is extremely graphic. If you are sensitive, skip ahead about 30 seconds. So once Dennis arrived, Peter immediately bashed Dennis in the head with the pipe repeatedly until Dennis was unconscious. Then Peter and Bruce began stabbing him and hacking at him with a hatchet, mutilating his body horrendously then nearly decapitating the man during their frenzy. They then cut him open, stripped themselves naked, covered their bodies in Dennis's blood, and then sodomized the body. Once they were satiated, Peter walked straight to a police station and turned himself in. After committing this last brutal act, Peter was transferred back to the mental health care facility that he had spent the majority of his years while in custody. After this last brutal murder, he became the focus of a biography and several documentary films. When asked what drove him to kill, he would give various explanations, but none of them were really ever rational. He once said, quote, I'm accused of having no morality, which is a fair assessment, because my morality is whatever the system allows, unquote. 
Peter died of natural causes in 2010. So, what do you think about Mr. Woodcock? There is that age-long debate over nature versus nurture. So was it nature? Was Peter perhaps born different? Did he inherit some sort of issue through his genes? It's hard to say because we know nothing about his mother's family and we don't even know who his father was. Being born during a time of horrible poverty in Canada, it is reasonable to assume his mother's health during her pregnancy could very well have been compromised. It is also reasonable to assume that she did not take prenatal vitamins, she did not have regular doctor's visits. Well, was it perhaps nurture? I am not a doctor, but I've been studying psychology and more specifically criminal psychology for 20 plus years. I believe in Peter's case that it was nurture. Peter most likely suffered from colic. His incessant crying pushed his mother to give him away, though I think we can all agree there might have been more factors aside from that. Um, Peter being passed around from foster home to foster home would be horrible. Never feeling wanted or truly loved. No one to develop a loving and trusting bond with. So in my own opinion, I believe Peter was a product of his very early childhood. I am in no way excusing his behavior or condoning his crimes. Absolutely not. But I do think that if his very early life had been different, even if he were destined to have some sort of issues, he might at least have been able to function or be a productive member of society. So what do you think? You can leave me messages and comments on my Instagram page at serial underscore killing. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.